I've always thought in images um and they come mostly at night. I remember I was in a residency in Kerala in South India. Literally I would I would sleep and I'd have my book right next to me, my diary and my pen. I would put the pen because it would come so fast these sort of brilliant moving images that I had to force myself to stop and just note it down because it would just carry on. It's almost like something taking over you, like hypnotizing you. So my stories of way of expression always come in these very strong images. And then I always think of like what would it make the other person feel? More than think what would it make the other person feel? Is it a kind of precarity? Is it nostalgia? Is it missing? What it means to not be in a place you're so familiar with which is home. I think that is something very personal. And then in a choice of stories when I when I find something which plays on this personal aspect then then I pursue that. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. This is the ICA podcast where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to episode 7, featuring visual artist Meghna Singh, and with contributions from ICA director Jay Pather. She's got an inc- incredible knack of making complexity uh, available and accessible to an audience and, um, you know, a courage to be able to go in there and do it. And a delicacy, a meticulousness in the detail. The quality of her listening is quite, quite extraordinary. In today's episode, we trace Meghna Singh's practice of extraordinary listening and careful observation through three case studies that have formed the focus of both her doctoral research and recent installation-based works. We set out on a conversational and historical journey spanning migration and immobility, placelessness and belonging, and precarious lives on land and at sea. My name is Meghna Singh. I'm a visual artist researcher academic in the field of migration studies and visual arts. I'm originally from Delhi, from India, and I've been here for the last six years. I've lived around the world. I studied in the UK, spent a couple of years there, lived in Italy for a bit and came to do an art residency at Great Moor Studios in Cape Town in 2011. And since then I've been here came came back to do a PhD here so I I grew up in and around Delhi um, and my father worked for the for the government India was till I was 11 years old we were a socialist country so it was the best thing to do was work for the government <laughs> my parents had um, my elder brother my sister and they thought they're having a third child and they ended up having twins. That was me and my brother. We grew up in a, no, I won't say conservative, my parents aren't conservative, but they're Indian. I think the one thing they always invested in was education. So my PhD is looking at 
visualizing migrations, historical and contemporary, through the case study of three ships in, in Cape Town. It took me one year to get permission to access the workings of the port, basically go inside the port. And once I did, then, then it opened up this entire world. I went to boarding school when I was quite small, when I was nine, going on ten, up in the mountains, the foothills of the Himalayas, and it was a beautiful space. Uh, very colonial. It was called Wellam Girls. Wellam is a small village in England somewhere. But it was very progressive because it was one of the first few boarding schools for women in India. It started in 71 and it was very rare for Indian families to send their girls away. There was a certain intrigue, you know, the port is right in the middle of the city. You know, you watch it every day, you see it every day, you can hear foghorns. And, and it was this curiosity of like, so what's really happening there? And then if you did try to go, it was gated. And that makes you even more intrigued <laughs> because why am I not allowed access? And so I, I thought that if one has access, then I'm sure there's a lot of interesting things that will display themselves, that will open. But it was also for myself, moving, you know, from India to Europe and then coming here. I've always been interested in movement of people, contemporary and definitely historical. And I thought the port would just would provide me that, that space to observe this. I remember when I was in grade seven, so five, six, seven is junior school, I, I became the video official and what that means is basically you could write a list of four or five names of films and submit it to the teacher who would sign it off. And then the Beraji, who's basically one of the guys who works there, basically in the kitchen, would go to the video store and get the video. And on Sunday morning, all the girls, I mean, there were about 200 girls, 250 girls, would sit and watch this one movie on the TV. But you were in charge of deciding what films. And me and my friends were so desperate to watch Basic Instinct. <laughs> <laughs> this is and so and the teacher was very clever and so every time we would we would try to write that name with the other names and she would be like on the Stone film you like playing games don't you I have a degree in psychology it goes with the turf games are fun I remember like forging the slip she'd sign and we gave it to the better G and saying yeah, yeah she's ticked that off and being so nervous that what if I'm caught because I did that and so I guess there's a bit of interest in film then, or having some authority around deciding what films. My first point of contact was obviously trying to get these permissions. There's this tall building, it's a Transnet official building, and I, I had to go in many, many times. But once the permission did come through and you go inside, I remember seeing these oil rigs coming back in and those were very fascinating. I hadn't seen Ulrich so up close and personal. And that at night, they almost look like these massive Christmas trees because they light up. You know, also the proximity of being close to these, these massive vessels. I went to university, which we call college in India, University of Delhi, I studied politics. But I wasn't very interested in it. I think there was a sadness about not going to art school. 
And so what I found as a relief was this film appreciation course at the Allianz Francais in, in, in Delhi. And I said, this is great. You know, I'm going to join this film appreciation course. I did that. And then something just shifted from just fine art to the world of cinema, which was amazing. You know, you'd obviously watch classics from the 20s and 30s to, you know, like introducing to the different genres of cinema, like film noir. I remember watching Wong Kar Wai for the first time. So then I was just sort of drawn to cinema. There's obviously the container terminal, very strict, a lot of security checks. There's a berth, which is oil rigs mixed with other ships. There's also ships carrying coal and, and sort of more loose items, not in containers. Then there's one terminal right at the edge, which has all these trawler ships. And just beyond the trawler ships is the ones which are contested. India is very competitive, so you, you, you have to know beforehand, the minute you finish your undergrad, what is your master's going to be. So I luckily got into one of the few film media places um, for a master's, the Jamia Millia University. It's um, a master's in film and video. They taught you everything. We did radio, we did still photography. We learned how to edit on, you know, it's cut to cut. So there's a film spool and then you physically cut it with a pair of scissors, the tape. We did puppetry. The, the teacher, very famous puppeteer in India, he introduced us. Like puppetry is just not puppets. You know, there'd be projections. It could be performative. It could be installation within a performance. And, and you could use video as well. And so that was, I think, my first introduction to performance-based installation work. The most interesting part in the beginning for me was when a container ship comes in, um, you have to pull them in. So I was allowed to go on the, the tugboat. So I spent a lot of time going on tugboats, pulling these massive container ships in. And that's that's very interesting footage because you're tiny and these things are massive. So. So several sort of whiz trips on these tugboats and then just like filming at night, you know, to, in the hope of like finding something interesting. I think on the surface, it can seem very pretty and different, but then it was always about like, so I film quite a bit, you know, I film all these amazing visuals, but then what's the story? And I almost had to like trust my gut in saying there might be a story here. Sometimes, sometimes I feel scared, sometimes. When I moved to London to do a master's in what was called performance design and practice, and there was like going to every possible gallery and museum, every possible show, everyone would be talking about this little pieces happening here or you know there's a final student show from another university and it's in someone's garden in their house and you go along and watch stuff. So I'd say London was the real introduction, opening up to these different mediums, also because of the students who were in my class. When I finished that course, I was very idealistic. I said, this time, I have to pursue being an artist. You can't get sidetracked. And, and so I started applying for art residencies. The story took a bit of time to come out. It, it almost just started from these people speaking in Hindi a group of Indian seafarers who they um, had been arrested indefinitely and did not, did not know when they were going to sail again. 
And then I happened to look at this other ship and ask, what is that? And they said, oh, no, it's been standing there for years. It's almost going to sink. And I was like, okay, it's almost going to sink. It's still there. It's been standing for years. There might be a story there. The first funded art residency I got was in Cape Town at the Great Moss Studios. And I always tell people that South Africa was never on my map of places to go to. Because when we were growing up in India, obviously because of apartheid, as children they were just, when you think of South Africa, they say Mandela and they say bad people. So <laughs> my reference for South Africa was Nelson Mandela and bad people. <laughs> Till like my late teens, this was what was stuck in my head, bad people. But Great Moor was an exceptional experience. The piece of work I made during that residency because in the end you have this exhibition and you show your work and people come. And I'd done this installation with this video projection. It was called Served on an Overlay of Brookhiles. I used my, my room, uh, my studio space, to create that installation. And the, the audience would come in and then I'd made this mesh of Brookhiles, like the architecture detail. But I spent a lot of time copying, imaging the details that exist in houses and then getting it cut. So the audience was on the outside. You, you can't come and touch the screen. You can't be very close. So you're separated. It's almost like a, a fence, a mesh of this brookies, and there was, uh, it was torn in parts. And then through that mesh, you can look inside. And inside was a dining table and a lace overlay, the same that had been used in the video itself. And, and the film starts with a white family sitting around a dinner table and eating their food, they're eating meat. And they keep looking at the television and watching this ostrich running around in the wild looking back at them as they eat their meat and they look back at this ostrich. And then you pull out and then you see a black family sitting on the same dining table eating their food, looking at the white family, looking at the ostrich, looking back at them. You know, it was something, there was a shift there. And, and I see that in that Brookhiles piece, trying to express a lot of feelings of being in Cape Town, but also like what I'd observed. Um, this sort of seething kind of, you know, under the surface, this, this tension, that's what I noticed the first time. This idea of land and who it belongs to and what happened here. But then, because three months is not enough, then I did definitely want to come back. So then I enrolled into this PhD and that's how I came back. I spent 10 months uh, filming the Indian seafarers, so observational filming. That piece was called Arrested Motion and it looks at how maritime law intertwined with labour relations um, sort of freezes people in time and space. In the beginning, there was, I mean, to be very frank, a personal kind of reflection in my own state of being. A lot of the men were from North India. We spoke a common language and I'd been, you know, living away from India for the last 10 years. So there was a kind of a similarity in a state of sort of being stuck in Cape Town. For me, I can go back, you know, um, but I think emotionally there was a connection. There's a um, very interesting anthropologist who spent time in northern India 
and in in Uttar Pradesh and he found that these men were just um, hanging out and waiting in the evenings on their motorcycles and you'd ask them what are they doing and they'd say we're doing time pass so he called them time pass men and it's such a familiar environment in India of like waiting just waiting at the railway station so I was interested in the politics of waiting who waits I'm not sure if there was a group of European men if they would accept this kind of waiting as these Indian men did accept their waiting which was like we just have to wait till it ends till till the owners decide our fate and it was indefinite so they didn't even know when it's going to end there is oh, this great sense of nostalgia because they'd talk about certain places they'd gone to and I'd been there especially one of them he'd go up where I said I go to this Buddhist monastery up in the in Himachal Pradesh, you know, he was from there. And he's like, oh, you know, I take my bike up there and this and that. And then one day was Diwali and I managed to find Indian sweets. I took those there and they were all a bit sad. But it's there's there's an understanding of, you know, what we'd be doing on a certain festival. And then I was interested in maritime law how that plays because that was the first time I was introduced to how these men can actually fly back to the country but they would lose their salary for the previous months that they'd worked and they would have to spend their own money to fly back and most of them come from lower middle class uh, families where it's so important not to lose that money so they just decide to endlessly wait. Sometimes there was hope that they are going to move again and they'd say oh tomorrow is going to happen and then no you know they got a, a notice saying that no, that's not going to happen tomorrow, and they just carried on and on. I definitely knew that it's going to make for a short film, but it was only after I had all the material did I start thinking about ways of making it more sculptural and more immersive. I also wanted to present it not just as research for a PhD or just limited to academic circles, but to make it compelling and accessible to just like normal public. How can I bring people into that research? I knew I wanted to do a multi-screen piece because I wanted people, I just wanted to give this whole expanse of life on the ship. You know, it wasn't just like sit down and watch one thing. And I was going to present it like that. And then I remember having a, a conversation with Simon and he's like, but there has to be something else. You know, there has to be something else which makes you feel that sort of sense of restlessness, anxiousness when it's endless waiting and and what could that be? And I had previously at some point played with ice and I had the idea of the portholes, the real windows in a ship that organized to buy these portholes from a ship that was being broken and I was like, okay, I know. What if we make the screens of the portholes ice instead of just glass? When ice is slowly dripping, I, I thought that's exactly what it is, you know, that sort of sense of it's going to take so long to melt. Then so I had to figure when I project onto ice, which, will it be clear, will it be not, which will work? Or will it crack, you know, how thick should it be, how long will it take? I found an ice factory in Maitland. Then we experimented and I timed it. It would take about five hours to completely melt. So so I knew like whenever the audience come, they would spend about a maximum an hour, they'll watch it twice. So it would always be dripping. 
Arrested motion has been displayed numerous times in the last five years and in different cities and settings like the Spielart Festival in Munich, at Kirkenau off the coast of Tunisia and at the Essence Festival in Durban. But the very first showing was in Cape Town in 2015 at the Remaking Place Symposium where the work was installed in an outdoor quad on the University of Cape Town's Hidden Campus. The installation was featured as part of the symposium's nighttime program, and so walking into the stone quad that evening, with the sky completely dark above, your attention was immediately drawn to the light coming from a series of small and large video projections that encircled you. In the middle of the space there were six tall, narrow frames, and suspended from each one was a circular window, the portholes that Singh had managed to salvage from the hull of a ship. At first glance, you couldn't tell that in place of the glass that would usually sit in these metal frames, they were filled instead with discs of ice that were slowly, constantly dripping into illuminated containers below. We have to go through the waiting and the pacing and the rhythm of that wait. You know, there is no great melodramatic um, outpouring of, of feeling. But it is that terrible sense of dread that slowly rises in you. The circle of suspended portholes is 360 and it's at the height of a person's vision. So you can actually walk around the circle and look into every porthole and there's a different image that's projected onto the porthole which is slowly dripping. So you see a dining scene, you see the men drinking their cheap whiskey, you see someone sitting alone inside a cabin. So it's you're looking into, you're peering into what's happening in these men's lives inside the ship. And it's very different to Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot or any one of those European existential playwrights who often work on the notion of waiting as, as an existential condition. We're all waiting just to die. These seafarers are not waiting just to die. They are waiting for someone to come to do the decent thing and move that bureaucratic process along so that they can be relieved of this. The physicality of actually peeking into a porthole is very different than just sitting back and watching a film. Also with these screens, when you look, because there's ice, you can feel the cold and the, the, the texture of the screen. You almost feel like you can touch these people. So it becomes very intimate. High above the portholes, also positioned in a circular formation, there were three screens suspended from the buildings, huge screens which cut a stark contrast with the intimacy of the portholes. And projected onto these screens was Singh's video triptych, bringing to life the busy working world of the port. So there are container ships coming in and going, um, there's sort of barcodes being printed, there are cranes taking containers. So it was about creating a sense of these men being inside and, and you look into these portholes and then outside you have this entire world of, of what's going on around them. To experience arrested motion in the fullness and detail of its imagery and oral soundscape, we must move around and between the projections and step back and stand still to take them in. Our own actions as witnesses, echoing the concentric circles of movement and stasis at play in the piece.
when one has been counting for so long, then it starts getting muddled up because going backwards, they're skipping the numbers, you know, you sort of lose count of the way you count. It's a terrible indictment of how we continue to live within a capitalist universe while the majority of the peoples of this world are waiting for that bureaucratic wheel to turn. And I think what Meghna does is she captures in a very profound way the symbol of waiting without an end. I think they were there close to a year and then they took off and they stopped in Durban to refuel because they hadn't moved for so long. The engine had a problem and then they got stuck in Durban for another three months. So eventually when they got back home, they would have been away from home for a good 17 months, 18 months. When I was in my early 20s, I couldn't wait to leave India. Just getting restless, you know, like tapping my fingers, apply for the next scholarship. You know, you have to get out of here. This is boring. I've seen it all. It's so... But I think after a while where if you've engaged, you've experienced, and then, and especially for me, once I've had children, it's always a question of, am I not going to go back? Because when I left, I didn't necessarily realize what it means. Like, it, I, didn't, I didn't think that India was not going to be home. The second case study is called The Rusting Diamond. It's looking at precarious spaces, liminal spaces, and how they're occupied by people who are trying to make themselves invisible in a city like Cape Town. Right at the edge of the port, it's trawlers and abandoned sort of contested ships. That's when I found um, Lady S, a group of illegal immigrants from Ghana who were taking shelter inside this ship, completely rusted, um, almost like a Tarkovsky film set. You know, to, even to go inside the ship, you had to be very careful. It was extremely precarious. I'm there to pump the water out so that it doesn't stink. It takes a lot of money to get rid of a ship. And if it sinks, to salvage it takes even more money. The agent was like, I'm not going to pay for getting it cut. The company who's hired me, they must pay. And then the company, they were like, we're bankrupt because we were a diamond mining company. But DBS seems to have taken over the whole of Namibia. So there's sort of, you know, it's, it's quite a few reasons as to why it was still there. Sometimes there's water coming out from under the ship. Because it's an old ship. The, the caretaker of the ship took me in. His name was Morgan. And essentially Morgan's job was just to go there every day and put on the pump, pump water out and make sure it doesn't sink. The first time I stepped on the ship, I was, I was quite nervous. What if I fall through one of the holes? Uh, when it was high tide, I couldn't actually get out because there was no connecting sort of thing to the quayside. I had to wait for it to go back to low tide so I can jump across. You know when you start getting a sense that something is happening, but you're not sure, you just want someone to confirm. So the, f the first few times I went, it was I, I didn't go past the, the sort of ground floor. I didn't even take out my camera because I thought it was very important in that setting to just introduce myself, set up a relationship, kind of gauge how he feels, um, how I feel. And it's only when he did 
take me downstairs and I remember smelling like someone had cooked food and then there was a little gas stove and as we went through the place I did see some clothes hanging which had been washed. A friend called David also was living in the ship almost four years because he can't afford to pay rent. That is also from Ghana, so I should help him. So I had a sense of the people living there. I never asked Morgan. It was it was only when he chose to give me that information. It was a remark, or oh, this one came in the evening. And then I, I said, who is this? Who came in the evening? And he said, oh, you know, I let my brothers from Ghana stay here because they don't have to pay rent, and I helped them, and they helped me. You know, this Ghana and this our Africa countries, we are, we can, are coming from the poor background. There's no job when I have completed my school, there's no job. With Morgan, he was mostly the person I would have long conversations with. Um, he spoke about his parents in Ghana and how they had gone to, to London to live and the police caught them and they were illegal and they were sent back. And it was just, you know, a whole history of people trying to leave the country. And he did say that, you know, these are poor African countries. He was quite frank. And then what do we do? We're looking for work. We're coming out here. The immigration used to come there, ask, who are you, where is your papers, where is your document, what are you doing here? He did say that, you know, he saw a, a man being shot, a Congolese man, uh, close to where he lives. And then he just sort of nodded his head. He didn't say anything more after that. So, of course, you know, he's, he's seen what it means to be caught up in this xenophobia and these attacks. After that, he, he didn't choose to speak about it, and I, I didn't push it either. But he did, he did say at some point that this is South Africa, and we've left home, and we've had to come here to make a living, um, but these are South Africans. Sometimes, sometimes I feel scared, sometimes. Those interviews we see with very vulnerable people leading very, very difficult lives is something that is carefully thought about, that is really, really clearly built up to with a great deal of ethical uh, consideration. So I think when we are watching the work uh, and when we are experiencing the work, we feel quite safe that this is not kind of a brash voyeuristic documentary. And that's where the aesthetic becomes quite predominant because this is more than cinematography. This is, uh, this is art making, a combination of so many faculties to make this subject so palpable. With The Rusting Diamond, I filmed a lot of just water swishing in different rooms. And that was quite beautiful, different times, like, you know, coming through the porthole, going out. And I wanted the audience to have a sense of this flooded space almost replicating what I experienced when I first went, to sort of share in that experience. Rusting Diamond was first realised as an immersive installation at the ICA Live Art Festival in 2017, where it unfolded in three dark rooms that once served as dungeons in the Castle of Good Hope. The castle is the oldest colonial building in South Africa, a pentagonal fortress built by the Dutch East India Company in the 17th century, 
that sits just a few kilometers from Cape Town's port and is today a national heritage site and often visited tourist spots. Audience members who came to experience Rusting Diamond at the castle were instructed to enter the installation space one at a time. The idea was that once the member of audience goes in, they can't just leave. They have to go through the entire experience. So they would enter one room and there were three interconnecting rooms and they only come out at the other end. The first was the smallest room and we flooded that with water and we created this little platform on which they had to walk. And we'd laid these black plastic sheets and then filled it up with water. And if you do that, you can't tell how deep it is. So the water was just about, I'd say, couple of inches high, not that high, but when the audience walk on the little platform, they don't know if they're going to fall ankle deep into water or like even more. So they had to walk very carefully. And then we had a, a projection on the surface of the wall, which just showed the textures of the ship, like close up of the waters, the, the hanging cables, uh, reflections. So you don't reveal anything. Through a series of discussions with Magnet, we realized that you know, the, the presence of water was going to be absolutely important, that you couldn't just show the, the ship itself without acknowledging one of the, the major tenets of that piece, which is that the ship is slowly sinking, and that there was someone that felt so unsafe on land in South Africa that they preferred taking refuge in a sinking ship. Then the wooden platform the audience were walking on goes into the second room, which is larger than the first room and still has bits of water on the floor. We still have that black plastic sheeting, but it's not flooded. So you can see it's, it's sort of patchy water. And then we kept a few belongings like a bag, a, 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 you know, a shirt. Uh, so it seems like someone is inhabiting the space. Um, and then we had a projection on an old door. It was quite a small projection and you would have to go close to see what was happening. And then we introduced Morgan walking in the space. Water coming out from under the ship. I think for the viewer, uh, what Magna provides is uh, a sense of responsibility. You take ownership of your of your choices in how you navigate the installation, and in taking ownership, you do feel implicated. Her carefulness in how your body is involved, how you walk on top of water, allows the the body to go through to a tiny extent, of course, a moment of instability. The third room, which is the largest room there's no water at all and then it's quite a large projection and here you see Morgan on the bridge of the ship and you can see the harbour so it was about like being in the belly of the ship in a dark space to going like a little you know but further which is slightly open and then to the space you can actually see the city of Cape Town you can see the harbour but you are you are in this space you are not outside there, there was a couple, a German couple, who'd come to the castle and that's why also the castle was a great space because the audience that we got there wasn't just someone who was coming to look at a public art festival. It was just your regular tourists who go to the castle. And this woman walked in and, and after two, three minutes she came out. She's like, no, 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 I want to get out. I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. She turned around from the first room and 
She banged on the door and she let me out. We hear about migration. We hear about the, the deaths of people in the, in the water. We hear about the persecution of migrants. Again, it, we're saturated with it. There is no doubt about it. And I think what Magna's work does is just takes us, takes us a moment to breathe in the reality of it. And she does that through embodiment. Uh, subconsciously, you know, that might be what I express. That when am I going to go back home? So, so maybe finding stories and finding people who are maybe stuck in the same situation because then there's sort of some sort of sisterhood, brotherhood, camaraderie in not being back home. Oceanic mobilities and migration and movement of people at sea, um, historical, contemporary, the sad part is the historical is played out in the contemporary. So the third case study um, is the case of the Sao Jose Paquete Africa. The Sao Jose was a Portuguese slave ship that in 1794 sailed from Lisbon to Ilha de Mozambique, a small island off the northern shore of Mozambique. And there the crew packed over 500 slaves on board the ship shackled them in place and departed for Brazil, where the slaves were to be sold for work on sugar plantations. But en route to Brazil, the ship struck a reef off the coast of Cape Town and sank. And while the captain and crew all survived, over 200 slaves drowned. The shipwreck went undiscovered until 2012, when maritime archaeologists found the remains about 60 metres off the coast of Clifton Beach which is today one of the wealthiest suburbs and most popular tourist attractions in Cape Town. It's the first shipwreck ever found in the country's waters that was identified as a slave ship that carried slaves when it sank. For the first time, artefacts of the ship are on display, on public display, that is, bringing to light its horrific past. United States the excavation of the Sao Jose was the inspiration behind Meghna Singh's collaboration with filmmaker Simon Wood to create the 180-degree virtual reality film called Container. So I, I was lucky enough to actually spend time in the archives in Lisbon and spend time in the island itself, where, where the ship had left. And that island was, was basically the capital that time of, of people from North Mozambique being put on ships and shipped to different parts of Brazil, you know, not just uh, this one incident. It's quite a haunted place because there are these, there are these old sort of warehouses, and then in talking to historians, and some of the people I met there, they would say that this is where you know the Makwa people from north of Mozambique, they would be kept in this warehouse and then shipped off. There's a ramp which is called the ramp of the slaves. This is the last place they would have walked down before they got into a ship. And it's just, it's a small island and to go through all these places is, is extremely haunting. And, and to imagine that this is the last, this is what they saw last of that country, of that land. So container basically comes as a response to these remains that were found off Clifton Beach. We thought a lot about, like, how do you respond to that in Cape Town? And one of the first few things I reacted to was, well, it hasn't ended, has it? And then we said, okay, so it hasn't ended, but what has it become now? Sitting on Clifton Beach, what else do you see? And 
one of the things that struck out was these container ships coming in and out, coming in and out. They're carrying goods, but these goods are invisible. Everyone sees them, no one talks about them. So then again it became about what's invisible, what's hidden from sight. I mean, these remains for a lot of people hang out Clifton Beach are invisible. We wanted to draw all these strings, all these concepts together and then make something that's not the sort of uh, historical documentary. And imagine what it would have been like for these people in this ship who drowned to what it would feel like if you're in a container. And then virtual reality seemed like something we wanted to experiment with. And so it became virtual reality and installation. In 20 minutes to 30 minutes, how do we tell this story? From the slave ship to the container. What we decided was that we'll think like David Lynch because we love David Lynch. <laughs> and David Lynch would mess with your mind. Of course he would. So we said, what we're going to do is we're going to invite the audience inside a container space You'd wear a headset and you find yourself in the, inside the same container that you physically entered and you can touch and feel the walls, but you find that you've been made invisible. And then if you were to sit down, that triggers the senses and then suddenly you find yourself on Clifton Beach and there's a white family sitting and they're relaxing and looking out at the beach, but then they see these enslaved people slowly coming out of the ocean. And that's, that's a bit surrealistic. But then what you see is that they pull a container out of the ocean. And then you find yourself in a sugarcane plantation. You follow this person inside a sugarcane plantation who's got lashings, a big wound. And then he opens the door to another container. And then we follow him and he basically goes and falls into his own grave. But now we've entered another container, it's a different setting. Suddenly you see you find that you're in a colonial mansion. And this woman who's a maid comes and, and she buries him. You know, so every transition basically is very carefully thought through. So you feel like the protagonist in these containers, these enslaved people are opening the door and introducing you to the next level of slavery. Through a sugarcane plantation, to domestic slavery, to uh, sex slavery, to a sweatshop in Bangladesh. Then we go into what we call the drowning sequence. The water starts gushing in through the roof. The water gets like murky and cloudy and then we see this flashlight coming towards us and it's a diver. And that's referring to the, the divers who are looking for the remains of the South Giuseppe Kitti Africa. And in the end, the doors open, and the water gushes out, and then you find yourself inside the container, but the white family saw in the beginning is sitting on the beach and looking back at you. So it's like you are the one who was pulled out by these people in the beginning. You sit with your headset and you're just like going through this train of container after container. So it's, it's this maze of containers and you, it's, it's sort of a journey through time as well, but it's seamless. You can sit with a headset, you know, of anywhere, but it's very different when you're physically inside a container and someone shuts the doors. Because the idea was to actually feel trapped in that container, which would be very different 
to knowing that I can just take the headset off and I can go and get a coffee. Something that connects with people now to think about historical slavery and also makes them feel something very uncomfortable. It brings this, the whole idea of migration and slavery and our history into the present because that beach has been so uh, bandied about as the, the jewel of Cape Town tourism's crown, it gives a sense that this is an unbesmirched coastline. Topographically, that's what Cape Town has done. And she goes into this high-class uh, tourist space and evokes and reminds us and brings us face-to-face uh, -face with, with a history that modernity would have us forget. I think nationhood somehow becomes the extension of the self as well, isn't it? Like the country you relate to, the culture you relate to. So um, my parents obviously grew up very close to their relatives and me like watching all the relatives come to the house all the time and, and there my grandparents also had that and there so no one's left India and now you know I'm the person who's left and when when my dad you know heard that I wanted to get married and I was going to live here but he, he actually sort of shed a tear he, I was their last hope to be living with them in the same country so I I feel a tremendous amount of loss in my children not growing up in India and not being Indians. And, and I now increasingly keep wondering, when am I going back to India? And the answer is, not anytime soon. And, and actually missing that, you know. Being in, in South Africa has also triggered the idea of what it would be like to be on a ship and come from India into the sugarcane plantation, Durban. Also, after having met so many South African Indians, you know, there's this sort of, there's the motherland, there's us, we've been here. And then you start thinking of other people who've made these journeys, but not willingly, you know, forcefully. And then what it means to them to belong and not belong. And, and then at a stage that you decide that I've, I've made a new home. And then what does that mean? Do you ever give up on the place you grew up in, you know? Does that ever leave you? The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is edited and produced by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode includes the piece Lickstick by Blue Dot Sessions. Join us next time when we'll be speaking to curator Nkulema Basso. See you then, and thanks for listening.